I've been unsuccessfully trying to start a campaign for about a few years now. Uh, Chunyan. Because you, <laughs> you know you can go to a bar and you can be, I'll have a bit, but Chunyan. Just to quicken it up, speed it up. How would you do salt no, and vinegar though? Like, Spinnegar. 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 Spinnegar and Chunyan. And a, and a pack of Proctel, please. Uh, <laughs> that was amazing. Because but, but people, every, everyone who works behind a bar looks at you hates you but gets you the pack of cheese and onion uh, chanyan mm. I should say so. chanyan yeah right we're gonna begin <laughs> hello and welcome to business without bullshit a sideways look at modern business and some might even say the antidote to your typical business podcast perhaps perhaps you can decide what did I say podcast it sounded like yeah the antidote to your typical podcast <laughs> podcast <laughs> oil barrels and pork rinds <laughs> Yeah. Be contributing. Thanks. <laughs> Deep breath. It's the Crispin's influence, isn't yeah, it? We're it talking is. about all the pork flavours. Uh, and some might say the antidote to your typical business podcast. We'll let you decide that. I'm Andy Ori, and alongside me is my co-host, Pippa Sturt. Hi, Andy. Hello, and today we are joined by the fabulous Lee Bofkin. Hello. Lee is co-founder and CEO of Global Street Art, the UK's largest mural painting organisation. Nailed it. Try and say mural quickly. Yeah, yep. Creating incredible murals for commercial and community initiatives. Lee co-founded Global Street Art in 2012, organising murals with artists and local property owners. And since then, the agency has delivered over two and a half thousand murals for communities across London and the world, I think, to some extent, and hundreds of commercial murals in dozens of countries. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Well, hello, Andy. Hello, Pippa. Thank you so much for having me. It is very nice to be here. Poor oh. Andy, that intro had the word mural more times than I've ever seen. Like success one of podcasts. You started with Muriel <laughs> and, and now everyone listening knows it's a mural. Yeah, yeah, yeah very good. I mean, we, we like to start with a sort of question which is uh, what's keeping Lee up at night? Oh, wow. That's uh, actually, it's a big one. Did, that's a good one. And uh, it's the things are keeping me up at night, actually. It's somewhere between excitement and like an energy surge. Mm. Right. So uh, Global Street Art, quick background. Last year we were 25, we scaled up to 38, which is roughly where we're at now. So the company's grown a lot over the last few years. Every four years, as well as our normal business, which is hand-painted advertising, murals for property developers, and we do lots of community projects. This year in particular, we have our London Mural Festival. We did the first one in 2020. It comes back September of 2024. The first time we did it, we worked with 200 artists across 75 sites in 13 London boroughs. It had an earned media reach of 1 billion impressions. It was wow. huge. It was on wow. breakfast. It went really well. And it's every four years. So it comes back this September. And it's really exciting and it's really daunting. You've got to do it better and bigger. That's the, one of the challenges. And you step up to it every, every four years. It's a big thing to climb. But there's a lot there. So you kind of, you know, you, you work till late just to, to make the hours. You get home. And I'm just sort of still a bit wired. So it takes a little time, a while sometimes to, to just shake that off. And um, I, I'm very grateful that you, you, you did a, a mural, bloody hell that word, uh, on the side of our building because it's one of the most beautiful things. It's, it's, it's amazing what you did. But is this, this is your, you've got this passion about, you know, living in painted cities. So I assume this is, at the, this is a sort of core thing in your hometown, is it? Well, I mean, you would we would want to do it everywhere, but it, you start closer to home mm. because it's the easiest place to to do something like that. So, yeah, in in, in uh, twenty twenty when we did the first one, we painted the side of the Uri Clark office. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's a beautiful design by Seb Lester, 
and it's a Hafiz quote. Uh, and it, it's still there four years later, and Bloomsday's really adopted it. Seb loves it. We love it. People stop and take pictures of it all, all the, the time. time. And it went up during COVID, which wasn't planned. That was the yeah. crazy thing, because the phrase is, I wish I could show you when you're lonely in the darkness, the unbelievable light of your soul, I think. Just your own about. being, I think. Your own being, yeah, yeah. And I mean, the timing was beautiful. But where's this passion coming from? What's this, I want to live in painted cities? You uh, find them boring or...? Well, I mean, of course, like I enjoy being around a more painted environment, but the the, the mission itself came out of a, a way to communicate what we wanted to achieve because it's something you can strive for. You can't finish painting a city, right? So, you know, you can give a company a mission, an organization a mission, and then you have to figure out over the, the years after what that actually means. So sustaining ourselves, we're far and away the UK leaders for hand-painted advertising, so we paint many of the large, most pretty much all the large murals that you'll see around Shoreditch, most of, uh, for, for the adverts for brands. So the advertising murals is something that we... And know, is that the thing that makes in. money? That's the main thing that keeps the lights on and pays the bills. I like the challenge of it, the turnaround times, the scale that we get to operate, the artists that we work with and, and the fact that they're involved in this and, and that's such a powerful team. And also really delivering for clients. You know, it works really well for them. Is the fireworks a part of, as part of an advertising campaign? It works really well in crossing over to, to digital content. Uh, and then, you know, over the last couple of years, as we focused on like the statistics of it, mm -hmm. you know, it's easier to prove that that stuff works. So, so that's there. But if that was all we did, that would feel a little bit. That's not just painted mm -hmm. cities, right? So we started with a really strong community community angle. Since starting now, actually, we've had more than three thousand. Uh, we've, we've helped organise more than three thousand legal street art murals. Uh, non-commercial, pure art, that includes lots of housing estates across London in a programme we've got called Art for Estates that's no cost to councils or residents. Do you have to get loads of permissions though to do it? There are permissions, but working for like community projects, even if you're not charging residents or the council, you're, you're, you're still treating people like clients almost. So there's still that mm. effort to go through. Uh, and, and that's like the sum total of what combines. Mm. So London Mural Festival is, to your original question, I suppose, the apotheosis of that. So you did 75 before, you're now hunting around trying to get, because you don't, you can go to places you don't normally go, I assume. You've mm -hmm. got walls that you have built up, a trust and a respect mm -hmm. to, to paint and advertise on. Yeah, but you, we don't want to do art murals on advertising walls. We want them to last. Yeah. And 80, 90% of what was painted four years ago, like yours, is still there, still Really? Great. They, they all lasted, most the of them? The vast majority are still wow. there, unless a building got like knocked down. Or it got, you my, know, so. my block of flats is owned by Camden Council. We could do with a mural. Uh, we work quite a lot. Have worked quite a lot with Camden Council. So we we so there's Bloomsbury a really, could do with more murals. Well, uh, anywhere we can get permission for, we try. You know, we're always on the lookout for walls. What were the different things you did? I mean, you did something incredibly tasteful on our wall. You know, a poem, beautiful. I mean, you know, black and white, just black very, and white. Very was it that? Chill. Was it a complete range? Completely different. So we were two hundred artists, seventy-five sites, thirteen London boroughs. Right? right. So that's a huge yeah. range of artists doing different things. That included last time up to eight. I think it was eight, six or eight. I can't remember. Housing estates in different boroughs across London. This time we're going to do twelve. We've already got twelve housing estates signed up. So wow, there's a big doubling it exactly. So there's a big side where. Our ESG approach, we're calling can for can. So for every can that comes from a developer-funded project or a brand-supported project, a can of spray paint goes into a community project like a housing estate. Wow. So so there's a really you know nice um, approach 
to painting in public space and democratizing who has access to art. Do the things that got taken down, did they tend to be stuff that was a bit more racy, you know, a bit of cleavage? No, not of... really. It tended to be buildings that got knocked down. It was, de- it was development. <laughs> oh, it was Sorry, I missed that joke. <laughs> no, it's just, I think if if you left Andy alone, he'd just paint loads and loads of puzzles. No, I'm right? curious what gets pushed back, I think. I'm interested because I love I love graffiti and I love, I'd, I'd paint the whole bloody town, but I know people don't think like that, you know. When you're painting in public space, you're going to get pushback from someone, of course, always because anyone can see it and everyone is arriving at it with something different and and obviously not just if it's an advertising piece but even pure art pieces will be objected and things that you might think are innocuous uh years ago a friend of ours a, a great artist sept painted a piece inspired by the morrissey lyric uh and if a double decker bus crashed into us to die by your side would be a wonderful way to die he got a complaint letter from a, a lady who, unfortunately, her father had been hit by a bus. Mm. So, I mean, can't please can't, everybody all of the cannot time. Can't please everyone. That's that's just mm. something that's going to happen with so many people out there. But you tend to you tend to pick. I mean, it's harder and harder in London to find the um, crappy areas, as they say. It's so gentrified London now, you know. But do you tend to try and focus on the places that have got the housing estate that looks like a no, we, back we, end of we, a bus? No, we try and paint, put more art everywhere. Mm-hmm. really and I don't want because I don't want also I don't want art. We, we, we would like to paint in the housing estates where people want it in public spaces where you know uh, uh, there's demand for it or people don't object to it Or, but generally there's a feeling a strong feeling that more art everywhere is a healthy thing more colour in a big grey city is a, is a healthy thing more skill and talent being shown in public space allows more voices to access that space and that, that really includes obviously the community pieces and and the artists you're using, do they work, do some work already in the company? Because your company must have yeah. artists in it. So the artists that we're working with uh, are often part of our team normally. So for the, for the we, we have retained artists, we have artists that we work with again and again on our commercial projects. They're part of London Mural Festival, they're part of our day-to-day operations as well. London Mural Festival, we opened uh, applications for all artists, or for, for artists, uh, on February the 8th, uh, within a 24-hour period, We'd had uh, 500 uh, applications, and now about a week or so later, that's up to 1,500. Wow! So so we're heavily, you know, going to be oversubscribed. We're we're not going to be able to, as much as we'd love to, but we're not going to say no, right? No. And a lot of what made London Mural Festival so exhausting, exhilarating, and successful last time was you just don't say no too quickly. You keep going because you might find another wall. You might Mm. find another piece of funding, and if someone wants to join late and you have the energy to make it happen. Make it happen. How long does the festival itself last for? Yeah, is it a start it's and like an end? a week or is something. Is the sausages available? It, run, it runs <laughs> throughout September. Okay. Uh, a yeah. month long. We, Had you yeah, provided a like a, a booklet to go see it? or um, There'll be a lot released on social media. Uh, okay. We will publish a map, but I think that usually, there will be a live map so as well. So are they actually painting the murals in September or it gets Both, done first? actually. So so yes, most will be painted during September. But so we when we launched the events around early September, because there'll be like, we, we couldn't, you know, do live events during COVID really. It was very little that you could do for that. So this this time we're going to have all the painting, but it's, it's also worth us, you know, we're also looking at events. That'll start in September, but it's nice to go into that having painted something for the sake of what you want to show or talk about or what, you know, what's happening. So I think we'll start painting in August. I notice within all this, we use this unpronounceable word mural, but we don't use the word graffiti, which I, I know from personal experience, it's quite a loaded word for certainly the older generation of like my parents who think of tagging. Do you, do you purposely avoid that word in your business and in what you Mostly do? Mostly we talk about painting. 
painting. Really? Yeah. Because a mural, you know, I, I, I don't think of it like, there's an art mural, but then I wouldn't call it like a, an appetite. You can call it a commercial mural as well, but but painting as the activity is what we mostly say we focus on. When you either use the word graffiti or street art, you're talking about crime and art form and or a subculture. Mm. And to be a commercial organization, it doesn't feel right. To see, we're not doing graffiti. Maybe w working with people that have that as a background might still do that or uh, that as a style, but it's separate to the, to the essence of what that subculture is. But it is interesting the way the kind of how we think about these things has changed. I mean, I went to university in mm. the 90s mm. in Bristol. So, like, it was like the height of Banksy and all that kind of thing. And that was a point at which when that first started in Bristol and you, you see the little rats on everything, mm -hmm. like nobody knew what it was. And it, it's now become this kind of like almost high art. It is. Yeah. It, it is. It's, you know, Manx is one of the most famous artists in the mm. world, one of the most successful. So. I think it's changed the way the UK thinks about graffiti. Definitely. Explain the business a bit more. So we 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 effectively operate mainly in the UK. Mm -hmm. Hand painted advertising. It's part of a, a, if people are unaware of something called out of home advertising, which I basically I consider the only non annoying advertising. Everything else is annoying. You know, <laughs> it's, it's ultimately it's large painting, right? So we do very large murals for property developers that are permanent. We also, as media owners, uh, we paint the advertising as well. That tends to be on a four week cycle. Although there's some longer term as well. But then we're also, you know, increasingly involved in content-related projects. Uh, and then, you know, everything from the design to the content capture and then artist partnerships and then London Mural Festival. And we've been doing more events over the last year. So it, it, as our social media has grown, and I mean, right now it's only about 600,000 followers on different channels. It's not oh, huge. Only it's, not, it's not huge. But, but the content that we have produced and do produce is great. So making more of that is a you know, it's, it's, it's certainly something that's on the cards as well. And there's such a heart to what you do. I mean, you have this incredible um, office out in Shoreditch, mm. you know, which is a sort of somewhere between, you know, a, a, an art factory, a museum, a social mm. space. I mean, you sort of, you don't, you don't see, you don't see the world. I mean, I said this to the other day, you're an incredibly altruistic person. You're not driven by money and you're not seeing this as a pursuit of sort of, well, ultimately I'm going to make, you know, tons of money and build a big successful company. There's other things that drive you. Well, I mean, what yeah. drives you? I mean, it's really interesting the frame at which we look at the business, first of all. So like a lot of people, because it's called Global Street Art, will think of it from a street art or a Banksy or a graffiti kind of point of view because mm. it has roots in things like that. But there's so many other narratives that you can look at it with. You know, fundamentally from, from the creative industries, it's, it's a human-powered thing in an in a increasingly digital and sort of AI world. So those become the narratives as well. And increasingly, I think we're talking about like celebrating human skill. Uh, yeah, wow. And, and that that comes up sort of quite a lot more. And in fact, that's one of the things that really does and has consistently driven me. We started with like we we talked about it before, like a mission live in painted cities, and then it's really interesting and fun. And then you have to define that. So all of the ways that that can become true, and you can push that mission as a legacy, uh, is is one of the things that sort of is is chief to driving me and us. I would say, uh, as as the organization, it's about inspiration fundamentally. That one of the targets we have is to inspire a million murals. That means inspire if you inspire a million. million murals, so there's the ones we paint and the ones we inspire, and whether that's teaching people how to do it, or whether providing opportunities for artists, uh, mm. or helping people. Like we've have we have an apprentice program, you know, helping literally make people give this to artists as a career option. Uh, and if you can encourage someone to 
be an artist that wasn't maybe going to be there before by normalizing it in public space and painting in lots of different places, then if they're a career artist, they might paint a thousand murals. Well, if you inspire a thousand people to become artists, that's your a million murals already. You're done. Right, You've achieved done. it. But, but there's lots of ways that you can get for that. So it's starting to think about not just our role as a, a an organization that, that just paints, but its role, much bigger role in potentially bigger role in sort of society and a much bigger contribution. And the thing that sits under all of it is ultimately inspiration. So you mentioned our, our gallery, which is fundamentally, it's a museum that we have in our basement with about 100,000 objects, chiefly focused on paper, ceramic and plastic. That's a lot of human-made craft design stuff from the last 150 years, including many things that were mass-produced but throw away and quite rare as a way of encouraging sort of teaching People like different levels of appreciation. And, uh, and we use it as a, as a strong creative space. Wednesday night, last night, we had uh, 20 artists in our gallery, just work professionals, all professionals, all people that we work with, just working on their oil paintings. That's amazing to be able to be in a space with 20 professional artists just working on oil paintings. It was, it's an amazing thing to be around. And can people just walk in? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, we try and take people around and host tours and bring people in, but it's not a public space. It's a working office. It's got a workshop where we prepare and produce for, for projects. It's got the gallery. It's got a studio that uh, artists come in and do residencies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and a whole bunch of stuff there. So because it's a working space and in order, we can't give the access to everyone all the time. We've got, to, got work to do. Uh, but we do try and bring people around, host tours, that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's a couple of things that I love about what you do. You know, having had friends who are graffiti artists and see how they were not treated as artists and were treated as criminals, as vandals, and like even when they were brought into a project, were, were given very ridiculous things. So it's lovely um, how you've moved, moved some, you know, you are, as you say, you inspire artists who are artists who may be involved in that scene because like I'm into hip hop or you're into hip hop, you know, it's a cool scene. And some of this great, and you inspired them that there is there is a career here. There is a yeah. real, real interesting job. You yeah, know? and and I think there's plenty of opportunities to move that narrative on, and then yeah. actually be like, okay, it's a London mural festival. And then if you imagine that the company's called Global Street Art, so the idea of being in more places and then maybe multiple mural festivals across the world happening at the same time and maybe artists moving between them with a gallery and a museum at the center of all of it Ooh. that is there to inspire people, you start to figure out that actually maybe that wasn't part of the original idea, but it spurs you on enough to keep going and see where it goes. I know people walk past our wall every day. I know the pub, if you talk to the people in the pub, People are like, oh, they love it. You know, it lifts your spirits. I mean, Christ, my mum gets emotional about it, you know, especially especially with sis and stuff, but she's like, I just love, you know. And so if you can paint it, things it that are inspiring. It pops up on Twitter quite a lot. Does it? Yeah, but quite a lot on Twitter, what happens is people delete what's on there and write other things. Something else. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my God, that's the thing. Because I've seen it and gone, that isn't what that wall says, because <laughs> I know what it says. There's so much space for, you know, just positive affirmations in public space. We're funded by the commercial stuff. That is really fun. And Not fun cheesy do. shit. Not like, you know, the American stuff. Live, laugh, love. No, we've, we've never... <laughs> Why not? We've, we've never done understand. that on the wall. Well, it's those, you know, those pictures of a lake or something, and it's like, you know... I would love to paint live, laugh, love on a wall. It would be just so obnoxious. <laughs> so obnoxious. <laughs> Painting out in public space is a beautiful thing. Just the, being able to interact with everyone, hang out with everyone, get everyone's opinion, positive or negative, is just an amazing thing to be exposed to. Uh, and occasionally, you know, we've done 
I love you was a really you know, simple thing to do on, on a wall near Christmas. And I think we did a Merry Christmas and I'm just trying to remember all the things because we're always paying so much stuff. But um, the feedback you get from doing those and it shows people really engage with it. You know, if you paint something on a wall, that, that human element to put the message on the wall, the effort that it takes to do that, the skill and the care and the attention, all of that good stuff, it is worth stopping for. And people do. I love that phrase too. Yeah, that would be a good one. I, I, which is, it's an old part, it's sort of an old ancient thing out of the jungle, but I, it's like, I'm sorry, please forgive me, thank you, I love you. It's like, it's everything you could possibly say to someone, you know? Mm. Could I ask you, I saw this great thing Will I Am said on, on social good media, God. which is that, <laughs> is that he was saying the billions, he says the money that has gone into AI is infinitesimal. Billions and billions and billions is going in. And he said, mm. the really sad thing is, is we're not spending that money on making humans cleverer. You know, we're so obsessed with making, because you struck a call when you were saying, you know, the skill of humans in terms of painting and things like this. And he makes such a good point that he's like, why are we spending all these billions on making computers cleverer so they can think for us so we can be dumber? And he said, if you took a fraction of what they're spending on Silicon Valley and put it into education and helping us all... And it's not class. really about being clever, it's about being creative. It's that creative wow, that's an interesting drive. Point. I mean, fundamentally, we, uh, it's obviously the economic opportunity is there and so businesses pile money into it. But, you know, I think anyone in AI would also say the possibility for AI to be a teacher. They're not unrelated challenges. Like AI can be useful for education as well and access that on your phone before you've That's got your own answer. personal teacher but it's you know? also the you know the conversation we had the other day with that woman about it's the inputs that you put into the ai yeah dictate the outputs yeah and depending on how you're programming it changes very dramatically what you get yeah definitely your training data set makes a huge difference in you know there's there's economic models about like success in society or as much about raising the standard at the top, doing more good stuff, but also reducing the harm, lowering less of the negative. If you want to do well in life, generally do more of the good stuff and less of the bad stuff. So mm. it's an actively do less of the bad stuff. In a society writ large where you've got a big economic factors, it's set up for people who are doing well to do better well, more well. The AI stuff, you pour the money in and it raises that top end. But we ignore at our peril, re you know, reducing the harm, uh, like doing less of the bad stuff. And our society, because we're broadly a meritocracy, then thinks about empowering the individual, but it's at the expense of those who've been left behind and not had the same opportunity. Yeah, because it's amazing. You look at something like the, who is it, IBM, that have the tagline, do no harm. No, Google said, don't, Google, Google uh, don't do evil. Yeah, no, no, but I think IBM was before them with do oh, no really? harm. Yeah. But it's like, it's a kind of, it feels like a negative thing. Like you're not saying we're going to bring good into the world. We're just not going to do bad shit. We've really not solved a problem for inequality. And as society, we are not great at maximizing public goods. That's the one thing, one of the things that I really love about my job is that the, the community art we do is a public good. Mm. The more you do of it, everyone can enjoy it. Everyone appreciates it. And the economic stuff that we do, the advertising, the the and a lot of that is public good, and it's actually it's really popular. But the fact that we get to do what is generally considered the non-commercial stuff, definitely, 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 more of that public good. Uh, that is something that most societies want to maximize. It's public services, it's healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. We just don't do that very well. And within what you do, you said can for can. So that's, mm. you know, spray cans are expensive. So mm. these would then go to artists to go and spray where you would then set up a space for them or? 
Well, so in the festival context, London Mural Festival, when we've had our Art for Estates program for years and years, we've done a couple of hundred murals and housing estates across London. There's no cost to residents and no cost to the council. So that's an unfunded project. We give the materials in for that and the artists that have painted there. Sometimes we've found other sources of funding, but generally speaking, artists are looking for a place to paint. We've found them a space. It happens to be in a housing estate, but there's other place, There's other pieces in the housing estate. Photographers will go and visit. You're visiting London. It's a nice thing to have left that as a your, your experience in the city. And it lasts for years instead mm. of painting over the same construction hoardings in Shoreditch, where it might only last a week or two because other people are painting there as well. And that's an important point. That's That's become a thing. Is that, you know, suddenly construction hoardings have all this amazing art on them, you know? That was chiefly us in East London with a program wow. called Building Sites. And that is for property developers as well. Basically, you launch it with a jam and thereafter, like, it's, much, it's so much better than a blank, boring oh my God. Is there a, Is there a moral dimension to what you are willing to paint for advertisers as well? Yeah, of course there is. You, yeah, I mean, I mean, there are rules. There are industry rules. There are things that we have and do push back on. And then there's things that you wish you'd pushed back on and, you know, and stuff like that. Regrets, so, yeah. Of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But that's what happens when you do a lot of different projects. You're, you're winning or you're learning. What do you think is the, big, the, the biggest problem then, I guess, facing your industry? There's a, there's a bunch of different challenges. There's the same ones, the economic ones that everyone else has. Outdoor advertising is struggles in recessions and downturns because marketing budgets are always the first thing to be cut. So you've got that. I guess there's different forms of outdoor advertising and just proving that what we do works. So getting data and statistics on that has been really good and it, it sets us up well. But I think a lot versus out-of-home advertising in general, a lot of advertising spend goes into digital stuff. Uh, pure digital stuff. So where we get budget from and how we access the market is 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 always going to be a challenge for us. Uh, I was thinking about this on the way out because the cha- the biggest challenge is not really the industry, it's internal, it's, it's energy and time mm. because there's so much we could be doing. There's so many amazing ways that we could be out painting more. How did you end up doing what you're doing? <laughs> right. Um, I have a split background. So uh, originally I was a scientist. I have a PhD in uh, evolutionary mathematics. It's not very artistic, What the fuck is evolutionary mathematics uh, for DNA evolution. So DNA evolution. comparing the sequences between, say, a human, a monkey, and a uh, banana, but just looking at which parts of the sequence are conserved between all. and So also looking at evolutionary trees. It was taxonomy, classifying yeah. stuff. Yeah. Wow. Um, but the methods and the maths used to classify different sequences of DNA. That After that, I, I uh, because of the maths component, I got a job in finance for an American company, moved to LA for a couple of years, and then I worked in finance briefly. It was not very good at it <laughs> until about 2009. Uh, credit crunch got made redundant, but that was really interesting. Christ, oh a lot. God, it doesn't seem very long ago, 2008. So you were still working in finance in 2009. This, none that's of it, this that's, when, that's when it ended. Wow. So, and then Global Street Art, we've been going now for 10 years. So 2012. It's always the 10-year rule because you're really getting somewhere now. Mm. Okay, wow. So you were so, doing yeah. that. But I used to, t- so what the other side is, I, um, I used to break dance for the UK. Wow. So until I was that's about so 20, random. until I was 25. I'm sorry. That's massively random. Uh, and then I I, uh, I I got an injury. Uh, I hurt my knee. I had to stop dancing overnight. I picked up a camera. I already had a camera and I was just photographing graffiti at that point. And everywhere I would travel with science and then finance, I would photograph graffiti in different countries. I ended up taking 
50,000 photos in 25 countries and classifying well, that database like a scientist. Because you're a taxonomist. Creative so you, taxonomist. You massively classified your I, I only just, I just realized because of the gallery and, and like I enjoy classifying stuff. I've had it as a skill. I've been training it, trained in it, but it can be really creative. So I think artistically, if I could be anything, it's probably a creative taxonomist. And so you can do all those moves. You couldn't do them now. You'd break your back, I assume, could you? I still dance when I can. I think, but, think Andy's but, working but, up to so right. requiring it. Spins on the table. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but no, certainly not like you that. You still but. dance, what, casually with friends or no? Or? Uh, when I go... Like, Can you casually I, break dance? No, it's less on the break dance. More standing up now. Yeah, more standing up. What pop like club, club stuff. Club okay. stuff, yeah, yeah. Who says that? Isn't that just standing there going like that? Yeah, clearly. <laughs> I need to go out with much. you, Lee. I need to see the dancing. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we can throw some shapes. What's your biggest fuck up? So oh, far. oh, probably. So far. So far. Um... Probably at times sacrificing health, just working so much uh, that just just hurting yourself really for too long. Burnout, working through burnout, uh, not taking care of yourself. Or how many hours right. do you, you would you work a day or a week? Uh, or? It varies. It's gone up and down over the years. Right now, because of London Mural Festival, I'm in for you know I'm in at normal time, let's say nine, and I'm I'm there until ten. Okay. Lately, but it's not. It's nine a.m. to ten a.m. It's like turn off for negative one hour. But no, no. But it comes and goes. Like I, you know, I take most of the weekend off now, but I didn't used to at all. Really? Yeah. And so, so I'm trying to be a bit healthier now. I always, I used to work on the basis that if I woke up in the middle of the night and started reading like an SPA at like two a.m. because somebody had sent it to me and it Mm. was on my BlackBerry or whatever. That was the time that I needed to take a holiday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I'd lost all like proportions. And yeah, it just you could work and I mean, when you do something you really love, and when you co-found something, you really throw yourself into it. But you have to just remember that you're. I mean, if nothing else, being happier and healthier is just better for your business. It's better mm-hmm. for 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 that project as well. But I've enjoyed being sort of singularly focused on it. It really works for me. I, don't, I can't see myself doing anything else. What were the early years like? Was it you in a, you in a bedroom with a with a? We you know? we had two desks. Me and uh, Dan Morris was a really lovely guy. Built the original globalstreetart.com, early stages. Uh, had two desks in a shared workspace where there were like twenty five people on the same floor, and we just had a tiny little. You know. What did you first do? It was hand-painted advertising? No, no, no. Years before that, we we started... Well, so the first thing that we tried to do or thought about doing with the 50,000 photos I took for fun in 25 countries with my co-founder's support assistance, turned that into like a... Could that be a website or a licensing business? Uh, you know, was there... People were paying for apps at the time. Uh, it wasn't about in-app purchases. And just, you know, trying those models and early gallery shows... Mm-hmm. Uh, but none of them, they didn't work, but we persevered and built up a bit of a social following. But because the mission was to live in painted cities, um, we... That was always the mission. It was always, day. well, now it's live in painted cities. It was to live in painted cities. Right. It's a very small difference. But we'd match artists with uh, spaces to paint from very early days and just just help our friends get permission to paint spaces. But then you kind of realize the penny drop years later just from a random phone call that because we knew artists, because we knew landlords with places to paint and how long it took to paint something, we could do that commercially for someone. So the first sort of proper commercial job was tiny. It was for years ago, EasyJet's in-flight magazine painting a wall 
that looked like a person chilling out on a beach. So it looked like you could walk from the city mm. into this mural, roughly. And that was photographed for the front cover of that in-flight magazine. Wow. Um, and, and we completely undercharged for it. But we made more doing that than, than all the gallery shows we had combined. When did you meet Conrad? Uh, met my co-founder and business partner, first business partner, uh, when I was working for an American finance company, uh, probably around, let's say, 2005. Was he, he was there at the start then, or was he? Yeah, it was his idea. Ah, okay. That's why I'm very careful to say I'm a co-founder and not a founder. Mm, yeah. This would not have happened without my business partner. He was like, why didn't you, why didn't you start a business, basically? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, well no, why don't we... And he'll mentor and help and guide. Yeah. And we'll figure it out as we go along. Wow. And when was the EasyJet thing? Like three three years in or something? Uh, probably three or four years in. A few years in, definitely. I always take that. It's like you start, after three years, you might work out what it is. And then 10 years, you start getting somewhere. You, when you start, you start with your ideas. They're probably, unless you've done marketing or research or you really know what you're doing, your ideas are probably wrong, but you're in the right area. And if you're splashing around in the water for long enough and you're flexible to change, a wave might come and you might be able to ride it a little bit. You know, there'll be a trend or there'll be a thing, there'll be something that you can work with that helps build a business. Or the classic agency model is you just work two jobs yourself until you can afford to charge for two jobs and hire someone else and you grow organically or somewhat that way. But that, that's why I think it's quite useful, actually, and it often works much better to have a co-founder. Mm. because you rub the crazy off each other and you don't end up like going down like a mental rabbit hole with nobody saying, whoa there. You just have to be kept in check yeah, by someone. And if that's your team or your, you know, board or whatever that is, but no one's ideas are the best without being refined. Well, thank you for making London a more beautiful place. There's thank no you. doubt about it. Certainly in my mind. Best advice you've ever had? Really good advice I had was from Jamie Coombs, who was the founder of Naked Whole Foods Bars. Um, yeah. Really lovely, lovely person. You see, he's, he's like his, he gave me really good advice on, I wouldn't even say it's storytelling, but explaining where the business is going and why people might want to be a part of it. And a lot of people, when they'll talk about the, a business, they'll say, we're here today, this is what today looks like, and this is where we're going to go in the future his way of seeing it was just to give more context. Mm. So where was it 50 years ago? And how did it get to where we are today? And given that, what is inevitable oh, about interesting. the next bit? And so it's painting that picture and, and giving people a chance to be part of something that's essentially inevitable anyway, because you've explained why. But, but that advice also had a knock-on effect for for understanding context and appreciation. I think aging does that as well. When you're young, you're just looking forward and you're excited and you're, what's the next thing? As you get older, you tend to look back more. You have more nostalgia, you know, obviously. But you also then become seemingly like more interested in history and how the context was to get there. And, and that appreciation comes not specifically with age, but with perspective, which some people have from a very young mm. age and some people never get, right? But but that that appreciation of what got you here... And what got us here, uh, being any any advice that makes you more aware of that, I think makes you see kind of subtleties a little bit stronger. Also, everybody loves a story. I mean, you know, you only have to look at reality TV to see that. Like mm. a narrative and a kind of 
it's like fairy tale of how where you are and where you're going makes people feel better. The biggest mistake people make in communication is uh, thinking it happened. Yeah. <laughs> those stories, those quicker narratives make it easier for people to like get it, get on board. And that works for advertising, works for sales, it works for entrepreneurs, mm. it works for business people, it works for explaining just about anything. And it also works, you know, in culture too. Worst advice? Oh, worst advice. Worst advice I've ever been given. I think um, some advice can like knock confidence out out of you yeah. and make you not do something. Um, you know, the good advice is to 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 better to beg forgiveness than ask permission. But sometimes people will uh, be more cautious than they need to and can encourage mm. you to ask too much permission. But really, if you're going to change something, there isn't anyone that's going to elect you to be able to do that. So you have to, there's a lot of making your own, being com not even especially comfortable or confident, but sticking to actioning your own decisions. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Business Without Bullshit is brought to you by Ori Clark, straight talking financial and legal advice since 1935. You can find us at oriclark.com. Is there something that you think is bullshit in your industry and why? The narrative around entrepreneurship, I think, has changed in a really healthy way. Uh, but the strength of team, working with people, the importance of how you get on with your team, how well the team, you treat your team and uh, the team respects and treats each other is really important. I think there's still a lot of hero we worship like the oh, Elon so Musk annoying. and it is so, so deeply toxic. Um, and it's not helping anyone. And it's like, kind of like a Twitter now. Like everyone loves that hero story, but it's not how people get there. Everyone does that as part of a team, builds up the resources. So I'd say that's a that's that's a candidate. And then let's chuck in Brexit. Brexit sucked. Still sucking. That Doesn't stop is sucking. Very much bullshit. Yeah, but I mean, it's not in any way controversial. It's just yeah, a terrible it's, idea. It doesn't seem to be much we can do about it. Unfortunately, mm, at, at this time. Yeah. Although I was hearing from someone the other day, oh, who was it? Because there was someone who knew what they were talking about, that France and Britain's relationship has never been better, weirdly, since we've left Europe and stopped annoying them in Europe. That's because Macron's relationship with his own populace is pretty dodgy, so he's got to get friends. He's got to have some can. friends. It's like, um, but I agree with you too. And yeah, I mean, and maybe this is okay because I know a lot of people want to make money and get rich, but I find that sort of evangelical, like, you know, this is how you're going to make money. It's like, I find that like exhausting. Man plans and God laughs. You don't know how it's going to work out. And the more specific your plan is, the more you're guaranteed that it's wrong. And that's why that's why that whole hero worshipping mm. entrepreneurs is so crazy because they haven't got there because they're, I mean, I'm sure they're great, but they haven't always got there because they're absolutely fantastic. They have amazing and teams. And so much it's better than anybody else. You go to Elon, you go to any of these people, they will have 10 people around them who are some of the smartest, most capable people you ever met. And under them will be another 10 of each of those 10. And that's how they do insane things because they go, right, I want to do this. And your team but you see it even, you know, Giles Brett that we've had on this podcast, uh, Bread and Jam, which is a food and drink event. Mm. He literally, last time I was there, he got like literally mobbed, like he was a superstar. And everybody was like, you know, wanting to talk to him, queuing out the door and round the building to talk to him, you know, and he, because... I waved at him from across the room and he came over and hugged me. And then all these people were coming up to me going, 
you know Giles? How do you know Giles? Who are you? Like, as though, wow. I, you know, something would rub off because it was Giles. And that's just like a guy who's an entrepreneur in the food and drink business. Wow. Imagine what Elon Musk would be like at something. Yeah, and mobbed. Or, or surrounded by securities. It's crazy. But I think it must be incredibly hard in that scenario. If you are an entrepreneur that's made a success of your business and sold it for hundreds of millions and everybody knows, you know, like, how do you stay grounded in that scenario? Because mm. everybody is telling you you're a fucking genius. Your team is telling you you're screwing up and when you're screwing up, and that's why you have people you trust. But And, and I think everyone, that's that's the key for whoever anyone surrounds themselves with is just people that will really genuinely tell you when you're screwing up. Or accepting the fact that you're a bell end anyway and you're going to screw <laughs> up and you're fine. And a little bit of self-delusion is healthy, right? Uh, you wouldn't start if you didn't have some delusions. Yeah. If you knew how hard it was going to be, you'd probably run a mile. <laughs> oh, right, I'm on to my... Uh, I, this is my favourite part of the show, I think. You yeah, know, I, I like this part. Yeah, I like this part. Ten second, quick far round. Oh. Uh, Lee, we're going to ask you <laughs> questions. You definitely should know the answers to these. Okay. Uh, they're very simple questions. Dee's going to cue some music and it's now playing. <laughs> and, and are you ready? Yes. Uh, we're off. What was your first job? My first job was working for Bush or Alba. I ordered cardboard boxes into which other shipping boxes would be placed. You would have a kettle in a box... Five of those boxes up, five wide, would go into what was called an overbox. And uh, it was ordering cardboard on the phone to cover for someone who was ill. That, I was temping when I was 16. That was my first job, 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 job. What was your worst job? Worst job, same. Same. The cardboard. I don't, I, mm, oh, mm, mm, <laughs> mm, uh, Marks and Spencers, didn't mind it, worked there, also Where 16. Did you, what did you work? I was, I was on the sort of shop floor, right. very, very young. Um, Rearranging the clothes on the hangers. They, someone was ill, so they asked me to work in food for a day, and it was near the fish count. It was fish. Ah, you don't like fish. I don't want to handle loads of fish. Some people can, but I was uh, too particular for that. I find it so amusing. Someone with a PhD in evolutionary mathematics in the University of Cambridge. Doesn't like fish. Well, no, it's hanging around M and S in Watford. It's where I grew up. It was. Oh, you're a Watford boy. Mm, Close. I'm. I'm no. I I grew up in a place near Watford that no one's really. What's it called? We should give it a shout out. It's got a shout out to all the Radlett homies. Oh, I know where Radlett is. One of my uncles lives there. Yeah, people. Not many people did when I grew up there. So it was in the shadow of London, but it was felt rural in some respects. Favorite subject at school? Biology or art. Gonna have to gonna have to push you on this, Lee. Make a choice. Biology. Biology. Yeah. Uh, What's your special skill, Lee? Creative taxonomy. So classifying stuff. Classify stuff. Yeah, but like really enjoying breaking down like collections and then ordering them in a way that makes them sort of fun to go through. What did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, What did I want to be when I grew up? Actually, one of my early things, I did want to start a museum. When I was breakdancing in particular, I wanted to start like a permanent hip hop museum. And that idea has changed over time. But the idea of a space that has a lot of organised stuff has uh, is, uh, is somehow been consistent. Your house is very organised, is it? Uh, actually, most things have been moved into the office, so my house is actually pretty peaceful and not so busy. Okay, because you used to have that picture on your WhatsApp, which you was a bit of a stairwell hoarder? or something, was it, with a lot of pictures? Uh, if you have more stuff than space, you're a hoarder. Mm. 
if you have more space than stuff, you're fine. You're a collector. Okay. <laughs> now, I once, when I was in the sixth form, um, we got taken round the back of the British Museum. And seriously, I still remember it now. It's like the best thing I've ever done. That's it was some cataloging. Just, it just made me want to be a curator. For a long time, I was going to be a curator. Shelves and shelves of amazing things. Oh my God, they've got rooms. I'm not kidding. They've got rooms that are just like shelves and shelves and shelves with little narrow walkways in between. And the shelves all the way up are just mummies. Wow. Mummies? Like hundreds of mummies. Wow. And Full you size just, humans. Yeah, wrapped up mummies. And you just walk in between them and they're just I mean, like, as a collector, you know you've done well when, when your collection warrants a mummy rack. Yeah, a mummy yeah. rack. <laughs> like lots of mummy racks. We didn't take them from Egypt, though, just to be clear. Yes, we did. No, of course, course we, we fucking did. did. I know, that's what's amusing about it. It's like the entire British Museum is basically Egypt. This is our, like, our relationship with stuff fascinates me. So only 4% of the V&A's collection is on display. The rest is, is in. It's, it's the, the same, same with the British Museum. Exactly. They've got rooms and rooms of rooms just those rooms. drawers the, with foam in. But the lack of the la it's not just the lack of public access. It's the lack of the lessons that could come from that being mm. made public, because you don't. The people that were around then, or even fifty years ago, hundred years ago, are not around now. But the stuff that they interacted with that gets left behind tells you so much about how they lived that understanding how you think and understanding how other people think or thought it's the stuff is really powerful for that but i find it i also find it weird that people don't have stuff like okay i am a bit of a hoarder but my house has loads of bits that i've accumulated over years young people today have got less disposable income it's less fashionable to no, collect but i'm not but talking about things like that i'm talking about like a play person, for example. What do you mean? What's a play person? You know, play people, Playmobil. Oh, oh. Playmobil. Right. I mean, I've got a, play, play I've people. got a lot of ancient historic so, Playmobil, for example. <laughs> Why don't other people so, have that? Because, well, younger people today have to move house, have to move flat every couple of years. So less disposable income, less storage space. But if you know you've got to move flat every two years yeah, because of the landlord and the rent and blah, 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 it means you're going to collect less stuff. But all of that means that the stuff that we produced before the digital era, like 20 odd years ago, or whatever, loads of which has not been digitized. The people that collected it, that were fans like you, Pippa, that have that stuff at home, that the pre that, it's in danger of being chucked out or lost. And it's the one time in the history of our species that we've made so much because of mass production, but our relationship with that stuff has tailed off because of often, like certainly with paper, with digitization. And because young people are less likely to collect, have to move flat, have less disposable income. And if you're on TikTok or Instagram, you know, and your friends are all showing photos of where they're going on holiday, that's where you spend your money. So we've got a stuff problem. Mm. My nieces come around my flat, sit in my sitting room and argue between themselves about who's getting what when I die. <laughs> that's it's really touching. But even stuff that has been, isn't locked up, the stuff that's just available on the market is more than people can imagine. If you go onto eBay and look up watercolors or oil paintings, you find loads of old stuff that people have made. Tons and tons of art that people who are not with us anymore, that are not going to make anymore, have just, it's just all there being resold and recycled and stuff comes out of people's lofts and out of people's estates and the things people didn't want to throw away. And this relationship we have with stuff, I find is really fascinating. Yeah, it's I mean, fascinating. The value of it is appreciating how people thought or felt or what was going on at the time as signified or encapsulated by that object but we don't interact with it as much anymore 
So for me, the value of it is appreciating it and inspiration. It inspires thought and new ideas. And that's why working with artists and this human-powered, yes, the advertising, but also the art, the commercial mural, the content projects we do, interacting with this stuff that other humans made gives a continuum and a continuity for so many narratives and stories. That's why it's also really fun to then see how you can inspire artists and change the narrative around what we paint outside. Uh, what did your parents want you to be? Uh, probably, well, to start professional, they, they had aspirations because so they didn't go to university. I know our son's got a PhD, for God's sake. <laughs> um, but before that, they were kind of like, you know, they, they saw other kids, you know, becoming like doctors or lawyers or something in North London. So they kind of hoped that I'd maybe take that route. My sister did become a doctor. Uh, so they've got I, one child they can be... Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Are you still a disappointment, do you think? Um, in many ways. <laughs> and always will be, but you know, you exceed in others, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, what's your go-to karaoke song? Um right now it's probably I'm in Chains by Oh, who's that by? I'm not gonna start singing it. It's just You're gonna have to because I, I don't know what that is. I'm in chains. What I like is he said right now. This right, is no, a karaoke I, I, man. I, I, this it, man knows it his obviously karaoke. Evolves. Oh god, Tina Arena. I'm in chains. Tina it's Arena. It's not the look, it's not the best song, don't get me wrong. But it does have a consistent clap and then click and then clap and then click that runs through it. And if you really want to belt something out and miss all of the notes, that's You've the one. So that's thought the, about this. That I've sang it. Like it's a shower song, but and it it's got a key change. Songs today have no not key enough. Change. They're so short. Where's the key change? When do I know when to stand up? Yeah. If I'm karaokeing, I'm sitting until there's a key change, and then I'm then I'm going for it. Then I'm going for so it. So for now, Tina Arena and Chains, Office Dogs, and I forgot mine at home. Sorry, Romeo. <laughs> Business or bullshit? Uh, oh well, we've got one. So Paintbrush mm. is my dog, our office oh, dog. Oh bless him! Remind me the breed again. I was trying to remember. Oh, She's a Hungarian Pumi, P-U-M-I. Gorgeous uh, can I just breed. Google that? You can. Don't get one. If you're listening, please, and you look that dog up and you look, Hungarian Pumi, oh, that's so cute. I love one of those. Do not get one. Why not? They are so loud. Yeah. So barky. Wonderful, very sweet, really intelligent. They're very intelligent. They look kind of like a little a they also, koala. Yeah, a little koala. They're also, well, that's a very, you know, it's a very fluffy. magical photo. But it is that. That's accurate. Very fluffy. Yeah, it looks a bit like a koala. Um, but don't get one. Uh, have you ever been fired? Yes. Ooh. Yes. Well, uh, I like Made to think of it as let fired. go. Uh, I, well, Credit Crunch, finance company, but it wasn't very good. But you were in the US, so it was a... No, I was in the UK. Oh, okay. I was back in the UK at the time. Um, but I was a scientist before and really enjoyed and loved lots of information but I couldn't synthesize it and I didn't know what I was doing to be able to turn it into a financial model and see whatever the key drivers could have been for an industry to be able to answer the question, is this a good price, should we invest in it? I just didn't know enough. And so I, I learned as much as I could, but couldn't really apply it. You might have been overthinking it because everybody else was probably massively bluffing. Just the fact that, you know, you have to justify it. And if you haven't updated your spreadsheet since the start of the project, and that was the th key thing that's forecasting the value, and you're like, you know all this stuff, but your spreadsheet was the same as that. I just didn't know what I was doing. Um, but, you know, great that the company I was working for at the time took in people like that to, to, to try and teach them 
to bring in a more diverse group into a into that company. It was an early angle for diversity in a very in a finance company. But Sounds more like by non-traditional. Maybe background. a good thing overall. It was great. I learned loads. Yeah, but a good thing getting fired too. Let go. Let go. Let Definitely. Go. I also wasn't happy. I wasn't that driven by it. I mean, if you're doing well and your career's going great, great for you. If you're not doing well and it's enough to spur you to move and you're in a position where you can move, good enough for you because you'll change, you'll find something better, hopefully. Yeah. But if you're in that middle ground where you're being paid okay, you're being paid fine, it's too you're comfortable, but you're not really happy, that's the place where you're in danger of just 10 years slipping by. Because I feel depressed now. <laughs> Sorry, I know, it's like that, isn't it? I know, it's 20 years Thanks of accountancy, that. that's it, you're in. 23 uh, years of 25, 27. No, I don't know. It's you, isn't it? Uh, well, I think it's you, but anyway, uh, what's your vice? My vice, um, eBay. <laughs> if you are a collector and you have, uh, and, and that's what's in the gallery, right? It's mostly been sourced from eBay. Uh, so there's 100,000 objects in there. I've bought a lot of collections. So for me, that's like swiping time when other people would be using like Instagram or TikTok or something. I'm happily browsing random stuff on eBay to see if I can find something new to search for. Have you got have you got any good tips for founders, other founders, entrepreneurs? Depending on the stage of the business, I think the tips change quite a lot. One of the more recent ones that that uh, I've paid attention to in the last year or so is uh, focusing more on happiness. You've got to be happy. You're affecting the people around you, and learning to sort of control your stress and and just changing state of mind really so and that includes meditation and mindfulness and all those but specific techniques for that have been really helpful for me any recommendations of things to read watch or listen to are you a podcast man yeah i am and i, I do i do listen to some of the standard podcasts uh but i'm gonna point people towards uh an episode of the boring talks uh which is bbc on bbc sounds about the argos catalogue it's really brilliant. Fantastic. Um, the the women it's that the series is cool. so, so good. Uh, it's called The Boring Talks. It's about topics that, um, how, does, how does the announcer, he says, uh, that, that may appear boring to other people, but the speakers find really interesting. And it's oh, everything wow. from like a history of, I think, lampposts, the sound of um, Saturday morning football, uh, uh, roads that were never built, and there's there's one, an early one, I think it's episode six, Argos Catalogue. It's really fun. I'd also say Vishen Lukhani's uh, six-phase meditation. It's really useful if people are interested. You meditate a lot? Yeah, every day for about 20 minutes or so. In the so. morning? Yeah, on my walk into work. Oh, you do it on your walk? Yeah. Oh, that's fits... nice because you always think you have to sit down in some quiet... I'm not very good at having a quiet mind. So for me doing it, my you know, it's, it's just practicing thinking in different ways, happy ways, basically grateful ways. You know, that, that, they're just practicing working on that stuff. And uh, as someone who, you know, did neuroscience as well, was an undergraduate, the cells that fire together wire together. So the things that you practice thinking about. Interesting. The cells that fire together wire, wire together. The things that you practice thinking about. It's like learning a skill, but skillful thinking is, is just as much a skill as anything else. So if you spend time practicing, say, loving kindness or forgiveness or something like that, you, uh, you get it. That's but really we, cool. But it's, I find it still find quite interesting. I think schools have changed quite a lot now. I don't really, I can't, I'm not in schools, so I can't tell you. But where we did PE when we were kids, but the idea of like mindfulness or like, you know, mental exercise 
practice how to make learn how to make yourself happy and or driven <laughs> and or there are so many you know. ways to do that <laughs> Uh, so this is where we give you 30 seconds to pitch whatever you'd like. Um, given when this is coming out and what I've spoken about before, I'm going to re-pitch London Mural Festival. Whoa. It comes back in September. It's huge. We are looking for uh, walls. or You need places to paint. Partners with whom we can make things happen, be they councils or developers or brands, and of course, artists as well. Um, but we, re- and also it would be really nice to, Make more content out of it and have more media partners too. Why not throw that in there? Um, really hope it goes very well. We're going to work so hard to try and get it there. So fingers crossed. We've got some more Fantastic. white wall above that white wall. It's the higher white wall. I'll it's take a bit it. above it. We'll take it. Yes, please. <laughs> so there you have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Thank you, Lee. Thank, Thank you, you, Dean. Thank you, Andy. Sorry you're not here, Romeo. And we'll be back with our quiz, Business or Bullshit, on Thursday. Until then, it's... It's ciao. 